Our script strain this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there, suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it fill, filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them, all of them, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them, abil- gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon the slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So is God's good word for us, God's beloved people. Thanks be to God. Amen. So, I confess I probably watched slightly too many movies. So then I start to think about movies slightly too much and I start to think about Plots from movies slightly too much. And I realized there is this like trope in movies that really annoys me, but I think the directors use it on purpose to annoy not just me, but like raise the tension and annoyance within the audience. And that is you have a hero um, or a very powerful person in the story who is like the chosen one or the best or the greatest or the most powerful or the whatever. And they have this tremendous amount of ability. And then for whatever reason, they spend most of the movie or a good chunk of the movie not using their power, but sitting on the sidelines. Maybe they've uh, been through something traumatic that, you know, blows their mind. Or maybe they think the world's better off without them or whatever. But they spend most of the movie not doing it. 
um, until finally at the end they decide to do it. To illustrate this point, I've, I have picked for us a selection of three movies that I think are going to hit all of the generations in the room as best as I can. So I've, I've picked three movies spaced evenly 30-ish years apart um, in a way that I hopefully will illustrate. I will hit you all in your pop culture enough that you can understand what, I, what I'm going at. And this will show you that I spent way too much time not sleeping in the 90s. And so I have a really weird breadth of film knowledge. So we're going to start with the 1953 Western classic, Shane. One of my favorites. Now, Shane is a perfect example of this. Shane is the best gunfighter, right? He is the best fighter. He can drive off any bad guy. But he spends most of the movie not solving the town's problems with his ability to gunfight, but like awkwardly working at someone's farm and just like not doing the thing he's good at. So it raises the tension raises the tension. Is Shane gonna save the day? Is Shane gonna save the day? Is Shane? Yeah, well, finally, he does save the day. Then he gets shot. He rides off on his horse and definitely dies at the end. It is what happens. He, he rides off crooked and on his horse. That means as, as soon as the camera leaves Shane, Shane falls off that horse and dies in the desert. That's my read of Shane. You get my point, though, right? Raise the tension. He's not doing it. Raise the tension. He's not using his gifts. Raise the tension. Finally, break the tension. Shane wins the day and ends up sacrificing himself in the process. That's the 1953 classic, Shane. I'll jump forward 30-ish years to the 1986 classic, um, Top Gun, starring Tom Cruise as Maverick. Two fun facts about Top Gun. It is my favorite movie. Um, and I came out the same month it did, June of 1986. Uh, we are... It is, this is true, the last movie my mother saw before she had me, and I love it. I even have a flight suit that I, fit, that I can still fit hanging in my closet at home, largely because of Top Gun. Now, yeah, well, sure, okay. We're all sharing here. That's true. So in Top Gun, spoilers for the plot of Top Gun, um, but about... Two-thirds of the way through the movie, um, Maverick's really only friend um, and the guy who rides in the cockpit with him, his radar intercept officer, Goose, dies um, tragically in an airplane accident. And this throw, Maverick is the best pilot. He's like one of the best pilots ever. If only he would use his gift. And there's like this, there's this major air incursion by the Soviets. Um, and the question is like, is Maverick going to fight back? Is Maverick the best pilot going to fight back? Is Maverick the best pilot going to fight? And finally, he does. He drives the Soviets off. Everybody wins. And some really great guitar riffs play as the people high-five each other on an aircraft carrier, right? You see it, right? Raise the tension. Is Maverick going to do it? Raise the tension. Is Maverick going to do it? Finally, cut the tension. Maverick does it. But you see him as that reluctant hero. Finally, jumping forward to the modern day, I give you Avengers Endgame and Tony Stark. Uh, for those of you who have not seen Avengers Endgame, um, after all the events of whatever, Tony, in his own trauma, has decided, I'm done being an Avenger. Yes, I'm the smartest. Yes, I'm definitely the richest. Yes, I've been underwriting a lot of this with my own money. But no, I am not going to do any more. I have found a cabin, and I've had a daughter, and I drink plant-based smoothies now. And then Captain America and Black Widow and them show up and ask, Tony, we need your help 
time traveling back to the past to fix things. No, no Cap, I won't do it. And then eventually, after Ant-Man gets turned into a baby and an old man and several other things, up pulls Tony, cuts the tension, uses the power he has. But there is this trope of the reluctant hero sitting on the sideline. And it is meant to deliberately annoy us as audiences, to deliberately build that tension of, is he going to do it? Now, I am fully aware that our friends in Acts chapter 2 are not reluctant heroes at all. They immediately know the power that they have, and they immediately rush out the door into ministry to use it. It is no sooner that, like, the Holy Spirit has filled them that they're out the door speaking whatever language that God needs. No, they're an example of a hero who knows their power and knows how to use their power. No, I actually think the reluctant heroes in the story are, are, are us. We're the reluctant heroes. We're the ones the power to change things, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we're often the ones like, like, like holding on to it or, or not doing it or, or really glad that God made us feel good. But like, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go out there and do anything. Even as we watch things get worse and feel like the world gets worse and feel like the church gets worse, we just, just kind of sit there. No, I, I think we're the reluctant heroes because the biblical witness from Chapter 2 of the book of Acts is very clear, like, everyone receives the Spirit, and then everyone goes and does it. This is maybe the scripture I have preached the most often on. Pentecost happens every year. There's only one really good Pentecost story. I always want to preach on Pentecost because this is the birth of the church. This is one of the most important pieces of scripture for us as Christians because it marks the beginning of where we live right now. We live in Pentecost times right now. We don't live in Old Testament times. There aren't like, you know, kings and, you know, kings of David and temples and all of that. And we also don't live in the time where Jesus walks the earth and talks and does the healing directly. But we do live in the time where the Holy Spirit is present and empowering us to do mighty things in God. That's where we live right here, right now. It's just this era has lasted for 2,000 years. But as you dig in to the story of Acts chapter 2, all of the details around it keep coming back to two things. One, everyone receives the Spirit to do mighty things. And two, God is for everyone. Here again, um, the actual descent of the Spirit in verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to, excuse me, and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. The entire church was in a room pretty much this size. About 100 people crammed into a room about this size. Anyone who's been here, when we are at max capacity, you can understand how slightly uncomfortable that was. And the Holy Spirit comes. So they're all together. Step one. No one was left out. It wasn't like most of them were there, um, but then like six people over here and four people were late to the meeting. And man, Thomas is late to everything. Why is Thomas not here? Nope. This time, 
everyone's together, all together in one place. And then tongues of fire, divided tongues as a fire didn't rest on some of them, didn't rest on the special ones, didn't rest on like Peter and John and Philip, but not the other guys. No, no, no. It didn't just rest on the men and not on the women. It didn't just rest on the old folks, not on the young folks. No, a divided tongue as a fire rested on each of them. Then they were all, not just the special ones, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they were all, not just the special ones, propelled out into ministry, speaking whatever God needed them to say, however God needed them to say it. Every time there is a pronoun used, it is all of them, or each of them, or everyone, or all together. Not some. All. All received the Spirit. All immediately were given the ability to go out in ministry. At that point, the church could fit in one room. Now... There's not a room on earth that could contain the church. But the simple fact is true. We too have all received the Spirit. And we too have all been given to minister in mighty ways. But it doesn't stop there. Because you see, the next thing that happens is the part of the Pentecost story that all pastors hate reading. Because none of us actually know how to say all of those place names. And we're making it up. And we're hoping that none of y'all figure out that we are largely making up how to pronounce these things. Because I do not know how to pronounce the name of the people that, that is M-E-D-E-S. A, I'm dyslexic. B, I don't read Greek. So I have no idea. It's all Greek to me. Do I know where Pamphylia is off the top of my head? Nope, I don't. Um, I, is that how you say it? No idea, but you don't know it either, right? So we all get away with it. But there's an actual point to it. It's why I read it and read it with gusto, even if I do not know how to say these things. Because it is painting a picture of the entire known world. The entire Roman world is framed by those place names um, in verses 8 through 12. Again, I'm definitely making up some of these pronunciations. How is it that we hear each in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? It means that God's word was able to reach representatives from the entire known world. That is to say, God's word is for the whole world. There's not a group of people that are not able to hear God's word. This was transformational. This was different. This was clearly defining. It is no longer one people. It is now all people. The people from Pamphylia. The people from Cappadocia. The Eliamites. Then the whatevers, right? The Freds and the Joes and the Cretans. Doesn't matter. Everybody. Everybody is capable of receiving God's word. So God's word can be carried by anyone in the church, has the power to carry God's word to anywhere in the world it needs to go. The whole church is called, the whole church is empowered, and the whole world is able to hear it. And then Peter starts talking. And now, maybe in the back of your mind, you're thinking, okay, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now here comes the special one, and the special one's going to do the special stuff. And now, maybe I don't need to worry about it as much. But you see, Peter opens his sermon uh, with a quote from the prophet Joel. Specifically, the second chapter of the prophet Joel, verses 28 through 32. Do you want to know what the prophet Joel is talking about in Joel 2, 28 through 32? The prophet Joel is explaining that when God's spirit descends, it is no longer just the, 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 king, the kings of David's line who speak for Israel. It is, it is all of God's people who speak for Israel, that when the spirit comes all become representatives of God in the world, not just this one special family of David, um, as it says in Acts um, 2, 17 and 18. In the last days, it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Well, what happens in verses 1 through 4? The Holy Spirit descends, as Joel predicted. As Joel predicted. And so what does it mean now that, now that Joel's prediction has come true? The other part comes true. Now men and women speak to God. Slave and free speak for God. Young and old speak for God. Everyone can see clearly what God's Spirit is doing. Not special kings, not just rich people, not just old and mature people, uh, not just people who are able-bodied, but anybody. Everyone receives God's Spirit. And this would have been radical, right? Because young people were not supposed to be able to do that. That was just the job of, like, mature priests. And at some point, people kind of aged out of their ability, and they got sent off in their dotage. And so the idea that old men are seeing vision and young people are seeing dreams, right? And slaves were looked on as second-class citizens, yet somehow now they're also receiving the Spirit, and men are receiving the Spirit, and women are receiving the Spirit. All of this is way different. But all of it keeps hitting the point that I keep making is that this spirit is for everybody. And then the speaking for God is also for everybody. Not just a select few receive the power. Not just a select few does the spirit of God. But all who gather in one place to seek the Lord receive that spirit. God's spirit is for everyone. God's spirit and God's power to do things rests on everyone, allowing us all the ability to reach everyone, to reach anyone. That's what's happening in Pentecost. It's not the calling of Peter and John and Philip. It's not a calling of just the name brand disciples. It is the calling of all the church who gathered there in that room. That was everybody. And it is the birth of the church that we are today. The Spirit of God is present here in the room with us now. The Spirit of God rests in each of our lives. The question becomes, are we going to stay on the sidelines? Or are we going to let that power carry us out into ministry as it was always meant to do? This is finally time in this series to address 
the really difficult questions that sit at the heart of this series, you know, about get out there. We need to ask ourselves the deeply uncomfortable question, why is the church declining in the United States? The church is not dying. The church is thriving in places like Africa and South America. I've had the privilege of going and being there and seeing it happen. And the church is thriving in pockets all over the place. The church is the body of Christ and therefore cannot die. But why is it that mainline Protestant churches are declining sharply um, over the past 20 years? That's your Baptists, your Methodists, your Presbyterians, your Lutherans, your Episcopalians. And why are even the evangelical churches, who claim to be evangelists, flat? That is, no net membership gain over the past 20 years. We're basically just stealing from each other and robbing. If you claim the name of evangelical, you're largely just robbing from the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Baptists, or you're, just, you're a Baptist church that's renamed yourself, um, or whatever, right? We're just robbing from existing church docs, um, but the, even, even the evangelical church is flat. And we're all supposed to be doing that. Why? Fundamentally, there are only two actual reasons that could be. Now, we throw up a smoke cloud of confusion and excuses. Oh, our culture is a nightmare. Yeah, first century Roman culture was a nightmare. There are evil forces opposed against us. Mickey Mouse now is our spokesman. Yeah, there were evil forces against the early church, too. The Romans killed hundreds of them. So, like, that's just excuses. What, have we finally found the challenger that is greater than God? Really? Is that the thing we believe? That, like, some abstract hatred of liberals in the media is more powerful than the Lord God Almighty who created the heavens and the earth and rose Jesus from the dead on the third day? Really? No, it's an excuse. It's an excuse that gets to one of two questions. It is either God has abandoned us or we have abandoned God. That's it. It is either God has abandoned us or we have abandoned God. And guess what? I have a book. Well, it's two books. I have an Old Testament and a New Testament. You want to know what this book says? This book says that God's never going to abandon you. Um, the book says that even when you are not righteous, God is righteous. That even when you are unfaithful, God is faithful. That even when uh, the nation of Israel became an absolute trash fire and got driven into exile, even then God stayed with them. That even when the first sin, when God said, yo, you've got one thing to do, don't screw it up. Did he abandon Adam and Eve? No. Were there consequences? Yes. Did he still make the covenant with Abraham, even though Abraham's kind of a trash fire human sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. So it turns out God did not abandon us. That's not how that works. That's what the Bible says. You want to know what the Bible says? You know what the Bible clearly says? That sometimes God, there are consequences that God needs to met out. But fundamentally, God's never letting go. That's why God sent Jesus Christ into the world. That is why Jesus Christ died for us and rose on the third day. To fundamentally say, God's never letting go of us. So that leaves the uncomfortable conclusion that it's option B. That largely, we have kind of let go of God. How many of y'all have ever seen the movie God's Not Dead? Okay, yeah. So that is riffing on a quote by a, a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche, which if you need bedtime reading material, will put you to sleep like that. Because what Nietzsche said, Nietzsche famously has this quote that God is dead. 
Now, when Nietzsche said God is dead, he had no care whether the Lord God Almighty still existed or not. Nietzsche's point was that most Christians don't act like God doesn't exist. That the way people act, God might as well be dead. And sometimes I look out at the state of Christianity and I am tempted to agree. Not that God is dead. God can never die. God is the you know, eternal creator of the universe. But that we act like it. We act like God is dead. We act like there's no power out there in the world to overcome the very real challenges we face. We act like there aren't words out there to convince an increasingly secularizing culture that maybe they need more love and comfort and redemption in their lives. We act like there's no way we can stem the tide of drug addiction um, and family violence and violence at all. That there's no power in the world that can do it, except on Pentecost Day, the power to do all of those things came into the church and never left. So instead, we are the reluctant hero sitting on the sidelines with all of the power we need and none of the will to use it. So if God hasn't quit on us, let's not then us quit on God. Let's then us not quit on God. Let's not sit on the sidelines acting like we don't have the power within us that comes from God. Let's not sit on the sidelines and somehow act like now is the time when there's a mountain too high that God could never help us overcome. Instead, let's welcome once again the Holy Spirit that is the living presence and power of God into our lives and then immediately get out there and do whatever it is that God needs us to do to reach a world that is deeply broken. God's power to do that is right here, right now. It never left. We just stopped letting it in. So we're going to close this service in a little bit of a different manner than we normally do. Invite the band to come forward. We are going to close in song. But as, this, as they sing this song, I invite you to take this as a moment of prayer. You can be in an attitude of prayer, whatever that means. If that's kneeling, if that's standing, if that's sitting with your head down, whatever prayer looks like for you. And take this time to invite the Holy Spirit into your life and into your heart. Pray that once again, we all may be filled with that Holy Spirit to get out there and do the mighty things that God needs us to do. If that means you end up singing along, great. If it means that this is just a time for you to sit or stand or kneel with God, fantastic. But take this time, friend. Invite the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit isn't far away. Wherever two or more are gathered, the Spirit of the Lord. So I invite you to be in an attitude of prayer as we close this worship. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. The power of God is present here. The power of God is present in your lives and in my life and in all of our lives. May we get out there and use that power to transform this world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.